Please pray with me. O oh God of glory and God of grace, how we praise your holy, holy name. You are God and there is no other. You are exalted above the heavens and the earth. You reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Your strength is our strength. Your joy, our joy. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts. Holy Spirit, instruct us. Use me, your servant, to illuminate this passage in Esther. Show us a fresh and refreshing message to transform us into the likeness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that I pray. Amen. How does your soul react when you think about God? Classical music composer Franz Joseph Hayden said that when I think upon my God, my heart is so full that the notes dance and leap from my pen. And since God has given me a cheerful heart, I serve him with a cheerful spirit. Mr. Hayden knew the secret of Christian joy and it led him to worship. It was the hallmark of his life's work. He began all of his musical scores with a dedication to God using phrases like in the name of the Lord. The same should be true of all Christians. When we think about God, our hearts should well up with so much joy that it leads to heartfelt worship. This is illustrated on the shores of the Red Sea immediately following God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. In Exodus 14.31, it says that Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The joy of their miraculous salvation from several impossible situations overflowed into heartfelt worship. Exodus 15.1 says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. It was the song of Moses found in Exodus 15.2-18. It is a song worshiping God for his greatness, majesty, and power that triumphed over the armies of Egypt. This song of worship acknowledges God's redeeming work and his reign over his people now and forever. God's people are a worshiping people. In the law God handed down to Moses, certain appointed days were included for the Jews to celebrate and practice remembrance of his mighty acts on their behalf. These were called feast. The word feast comes from two Hebrew words meaning divinely appointed times and to dance. God's appointed feasts were times of joy, celebration. They were meant to fill the people with the joy that comes from knowing God and experiencing his miraculous and providential work. For the Jews, God is the power behind everything that happens. They believe in the living God, a personal and loving God. 
One rabbi writes, God is not distant in time or detached, but passionately engaged and present. The central message of the book of Esther is that what appears as chance is completely guided by God. Because of his providence, the enemy's plan to destroy the Jews was turned on its head and God's people triumphed over those who hated them. With their souls filled with joy, it was time to celebrate. Or as Warren Wearsby said, the tables having been turned, the tables could now be spread. In Esther chapter 9 verses 20 through 32, Esther and Mordecai established the Feast of Purim as an enduring and worshipful remembrance of Israel's triumph. As we work through this passage, the lesson that emerges is that the joy of the Lord leads to heartfelt worship. That is the truth that we will examine in our two divisions, obliging of the feast and obligations of the feast. So our first division is obliging of the feast. Esther chapter 9 verses 20 through 25. Um, if you open your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Verses 20 through 22. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Mordecai recorded these things. This refers to what happened in the battle between his decree and Haman's. Those who followed his decree triumphed. Those who followed Haman's decree were soundly defeated. Mordecai does not want the Jews to forget this momentous occasion. He wants them to celebrate it, so he records it and sends it in a letter to all the Jews in the Persian Empire. Mordecai's letter proposes the establishment of the Jewish Feast of Purim. Nothing helps us remember and rejoice better than recording or writing down what God has done for us. Mordecai recommends that they, meaning the Jews, make these days of feasting and gladness. This is the only Jewish feast not established by the command of God but by the command of mere human beings. The Jewish scriptures, which, were, which are comprised of what we know as the first five books of the Bible, is called the Torah. The Torah, in the Torah, God commanded the Israelites to celebrate seven feasts to remember his mighty acts in celebratory worship. The word worship comes from the old English word worthship. It means to proclaim or give worth to something you consider precious and supremely valuable. 
to worship the Lord is to ascribe to him the honor, glory, adoration, praise, reverence, and devotion that is due him, both for his greatness and for his goodness. The Jews in Esther's day drew on a rich heritage of celebratory worship. The Feast of Purim occurs just before the Feast of Passover. It is a two-day feast celebrated on the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar. Verse 22 says it celebrates the day that the Jews got relief from their enemies. But they did not get relief. They were given relief by the sovereign and all-powerful God. This yearly reminder encouraged God's people to always remember and rejoice in God as the giver of every good and perfect gift. By his sovereign power, their sorrow turned into gladness and their mourning into a holiday. By his sovereign power, they were filled with the joy of the Lord. This joy, as we learned in Galatians chapter 5, is one facet of the fruit of the Spirit. As such, it is a gift of grace from God to every believer. Commentators MacArthur and Mayhew say this joy is a happiness based on unchanging divine promises and eternal spiritual realities. It is the sense of well-being experienced by one who knows that all is well between oneself and the Lord. Joy is the deep, abiding, inner thankfulness to God for His goodness that is not diminished or interrupted when less than de desirable circumstances intrude on one's life. When believers experience supernatural joy, generosity of heartfelt love for one another produces uncontainable gladness that erupts into praise to God. This expands the witness of believers in Jesus Christ to the watching world who take notice of the irrefutable transformation and selfless virtues of believers. God continually uses the joyful and spirit-filled unity of believers to draw unbelieving sinners to himself. This was true in the events in the book of Esther. In Esther chapter 8, verses 16 through 17, the gladness and joy of the Jews proclaimed the joy of the Lord before they even entered the battle. It caused the peoples in the, the Persian Empire to identify with them and declare themselves Jews. The joy of the Lord in his people always makes the gospel attractive. Heartfelt worship attracts others to God. The Jews went from being under the threat of utter destruction to a glorious triumph over their enemies. This is the theme of the Feast of Purim. Therefore, these two days were to be filled with feasting, gladness, and gift-giving. Verse 23 says, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. 
So the Jews accepted Mordecai's letter, obliging them to observe this feast. But it appears that they had already begun to celebrate it. Mordecai simply issues an order, or possibly even a proposal, that it be celebrated annually and forever. Verses 24 through 25 set in stone the reason for the celebration. Haman, enemy of the Jews, plotted to destroy them and cast purr to determine the day on which he would crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he ordered the evil plan to be turned on Haman's own head. He and his sons were hanged on the gallows. Although King Ahasuerus is credited for the dramatic turn of events, this was not true. If you recall, he had signed off on Haman's evil plan without even fully understanding what it meant. So how do we understand this part of the passage? Well, God remains hidden, invisible to the pagan world. Yet he was providentially working through this very flawed earthly king to save the people of God from annihilation. God would not break his covenant by failing to protect the line through which his promised Messiah would come. Although King Ahasuerus eventually put his seal on the decree written by Esther and Mordecai, this was, in fact, the mighty act of the king, the king of kings. At the heart of the Feast of Purim is remembering and rejoicing a time when God gave the Jews rest from their enemies, when their sorrow turned to joy and their mourning to celebration. The theme of gaining rest from enemies is a rich theme that is threaded throughout the Old Testament. It all points to Jesus Christ. He is the one who died on the cross to give us rest from the ultimate enemy, death. God's mighty act of redemption came through his life, death, and resurrection. When you and I remember what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, we cannot help but rejoice. The good news of the gospel fills our hearts with joy, and this joy leads to the heartfelt worship of God. This gives us our first truth. Heartfelt worship is rooted in our celebration of God's mighty act of redemption. How heartfelt is your worship? Is your focus on the form of worship, like the song sung and the prayers prayed? Or is your focus fixed on the only one worthy of worship? A.W. Tozer writes that God made us to worship. That is why we were created. Everything has its reason for being here. We have this reason, that we might worship the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. 
We sinned and lost the glory and fell, and the light went out in our hearts, and we stopped worshiping God and set our affections on things below. But God sent his only son. He was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and buried, and rose on the third day from the dead. And he sitteth at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens in order that he might restore us again to worship. He redeems us so that we might worship again, that we might take our place again, even on earth with the angels in heaven, that we might feel in our hearts and express in our own way that humbling but nevertheless delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overwhelming love in the presence of that ancient mystery that unspeakable majesty, that ancient of days. Keeping God and his mighty act of redemption central to our worship is critical. When we truly grasp the meaning of what he has done to redeem sinners like you and me, our hearts will be obliged or compelled to worship with great, great joy. And for believers, the supreme act of worship is to offer all of themselves as living sacrifices to the Lord. This is our holy obligation as God's children. And this is foreshadowed by the Jews in Esther who enthusiastically welcomed the obligations of the Feast of Purim. So our second division is obligations of the feast. Esther chapter 9, verses 26 through 32. Verse 26, Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them. In Esther chapter 3 verse 7, Haman used the pur, or the lot, to determine the exact date to destroy the Jews. The Jews took the Persian word pur and gave it a Hebrew plural, purim either because the Persian method of casting um, involves several lots or because Haman cast the purr several times. The purr became a symbol of how God turned the tables on Haman and delivered his people. Although God is hidden and unnamed, Purim and the entire book of Esther reminds us that he is an invisible force sovereignly at work, often through circumstances, not miraculous power. The only information about the origins of Purim comes from the book of Esther, and it is a feast that has been continually observed throughout history from the times of King Ahasuerus until today. This means that it has been celebrated for almost 25 centuries. Naming the festival Purim 
focuses attention on something deeper than the actions of human beings. It is a reminder that it is God and God alone who determines how every single event in history unfolds. God determines the lot of his people. As his people, we have a habit of forgetting the sovereign goodness of God. The cast of Pur or Lots perfectly captures the behind-the-scenes hidden work of God's providence. Yet once revealed to the Jews, their hearts were filled with a joyous obligation to worship and celebrate. Verses 27 through 28. The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, in every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the uh, commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. So the Jews, their offspring, and all who join them, meaning the Gentiles, heartily agree to Mordecai's proposed celebration. They express their agreement with strong words, firmly obligated, without fail, remembered and kept throughout every generation, never fall into disuse, never cease. The Jews and those who identified with them never ever wanted to forget what happened. They never ever wanted their children or their children's children to forget what happened. Chuck Swindoll says that in order to have perspective, we must have monuments and memorials, places to return to and learn from and talk about and pass on. If we don't, we are destined to live rootless, fast-lane lives without much significance and all too seldom celebrations. All God's ordained or appointed feast in the Old Testament reminded his people to never ever forget the Lord their God. Every feast cried out, remember, Remember God's mighty acts. Celebrate. Celebrate God's sovereign goodness. Rejoice. Rejoice in God's mercy and grace. Worship. Worship your holy God. Knowing and remembering God fills his people with the joy of the Lord, which leads to heartfelt worship. This is seen in the seven feasts God commanded his people to observe. And every God-commanded feast points straight to Jesus Christ. They were fulfilled in his life, death, and resurrection, as well as in his promised return. Therefore, they are relevant to believers today. The Feast of Passover was celebrated 
Um, it celebrated the angel of death passing over houses covered with the blood of the lamb. This points to our salvation purchased by the perfect lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The feast of unleavened bread was celebrated by carefully cleansing homes of every trace of yeast or leaven, which is symbolic of sin. This points to our redemption and sanctification. The feast of the first fruits was celebrated by giving the first and the best of the harvest to God out of gratitude for his provision. This points to his ultimate provision, Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, was celebrated 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits and eventually the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This feast celebrated the wheat harvest and points to the great soul harvest at the first Pentecost, following Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. It also points to the descending of the Holy Spirit to live in every believer. The Feast of Trumpets, also known as Rosh Hashanah, is the Jewish New Year, a day when silver trumpets call the people to prayer. This points to the sound of the trumpet which will blast when Jesus Christ returns in glory for his bride and celebrates with the Feast of the Lamb. The Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, is a day of solemn rest, reflection, and repentance. It points to Christ's atoning death on the cross as payment for our sins. That alone gives us true and eternal rest. Finally, the Feast of Tabernacles or Booze, which followed the Day of Atonement. It celebrated that God's presence, provision, and protection went with the Israelites for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. The Lord dwelt with the Israelites in a tented temple called the Tabernacle. So this feast points to God tabernacling with us or indwelling us by his Holy Spirit. It also points to God's promise that the Lord Jesus Christ will one day return and take us to our heavenly home to tabernacle or live with him forever. When he does, there will be no more death and no more suffering. And he himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. What a day of rejoicing that will be. Every Old Testament feast provides a reason to rejoice in God's sovereign goodness. They fill his people with the joy of the Lord that leads to heartfelt worship. Though hidden in Esther's time, God's sovereign goodness is celebrated today in the Feast of Purim. Verse 29. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail and Mordecai the Jew, gave full authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. So Esther sent her decree confirming Mordecai's previous declaration of the official Jewish holiday to encourage its firm establishment. The Feast of Purim was established in Israel by the authority of Esther, 
queen of Persia, and Mordecai, the king's vizier, second only to the king of Persia. The power and authority displayed by Esther and Mordecai is remarkable. Only the behind-the-scenes power and authority of God explains how two Jewish exiles were allowed to do this in the powerful Persian Empire. Verses 30 through 32. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Esther's letter was sent with words of peace and truth. This contrasts with Haman's letter sent with words of war and deception. And in verse 31, a day of fasting is added to the feast to recall their lament under Haman's death decree. Called the fast of Esther, it remembers how Esther and the people fasted for three days before Esther boldly went into the presence of King Ahasuerus, even though he had not invited her to do so. The fast is observed on Adar the 13th and is followed by two days of feasting. The Jews still keep Esther's fast before celebrating Purim. There is great wisdom in interlacing our celebrations with times to fast and lament. For believers today, the call to fast and lament over our sin in times of confession and repentance is very, very wise. You see, until we truly see the wickedness of our sin before our holy God, we cannot rejoice in his saving work. Our souls are not filled with the joy of the Lord and our hearts remain far from God. But when we confess our sin, our souls are filled with the joy of the Lord and we cannot help but fall before God in heartfelt worship. This brings us to our second truth. Heartfelt worship is rooted in the joy that is ours in Christ. What moves you to face-planting heartfelt worship? Is it the realization of the wickedness of your sin? A fuller understanding of the holiness of God? Or a better grasp of what Jesus accomplished for you? on the cross. The truth of the gospel calls us to see our sin for what it is, an affront to our holy God. Sin separates us from God because he is holy, holy, holy. The penalty for that sin is death, ours or a substitute's. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, died on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sin, 
All who receive him by grace through faith are saved from the punishment due their sin. Not only that, they are given the gifts of eternal life and the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us the fruit of the Spirit. One facet of this fruit is his unshakable, unbreakable joy. Truly, heartfelt worship is rooted in the joy that is ours in Christ. How does your soul react when you think about God? Is your heart so filled with joy that it dances and leaps with a cheerful spirit as you serve and worship God? If not, why not? The celebration of the Feast of Purim helped God's people see the hidden nature of God's work more clearly. You and I need to celebrate God's providential hidden work in our world today. While our world seems to be spiraling down into unrelenting darkness and pervasive evil, many people remain unaware of his hidden but glorious work of redemption. They do not know that the visible darkness and evil will not succeed in destroying God's people. But we do. We know we can trust God is working behind the scenes, just as he did in the story of Esther. He's doing that to accomplish a great redemption and save his people from the hand of the one seeking our destruction. Therefore, we cannot help but be filled with joy and move to heartfelt worship of the eternal King of heaven. And our joy, our worship, preaches the gospel to the lost. It gives them a glimpse of heaven. A.W. Tozer writes, every glimpse of heaven and of God's created beings is always a glimpse of worship and rejoicing and praise because God is who he is. In Revelation chapter 4 verses 10 through 11, the Apostle John speaks of the elders falling down before God who is seated on the throne and worshiping him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Oh, my friends, worship your king. If you cannot find joy in your current situation, pray. Pray, Lord God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then wait patiently for the Lord. He will hear your cry, draw you up from the pit of destruction and out of the miry bog. He will set your feet upon a rock and make your steps secure. He will put a new song in your mouth, a song of praise to him. The joy of the Lord, it always leads to heartfelt worship. Would you pray with me?
Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and earth are yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. O Holy Spirit, keep our souls hungry for holiness and our hearts filled with worship for our God and King. This we pray in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. <music> 